This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I'm also the Public Relations Officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Today, my guest is Jutta Clausen, author of the book Western Jihadism, A 30-Year History, published by Oxford University Press, out now in hardcover and Kindle, published this year in 2021. Welcome, Yuta. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your program. Uh, It's a a pleasure. We'd like to start off our interviews by asking our authors to please let our audience know a little bit of, you know, a a little bit more background uh, to yourself, and particularly in relation to the subject of this book. Can you do so? Yes, absolutely. So the, this book has been uh, very long in the making. Um, I began working, uh, collecting uh, the data that informs the book uh, already back in 2006. And uh, the impetus uh, for this work was that at that time I had just published a book uh, also with Oxford University Press, uh, which also publishes this new book, uh, about uh, that was based on interviews with um, Muslim uh, leaders in six European countries, um, uh, people who had been elected uh, to parliaments, who had been elected to national assemblies, uh, to uh, in leadership positions in uh, large metropolitan city councils, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and this was um, a book that, um, in turn, had been. Uh, motivated by my reaction against uh, the uh, uh, what became known as the clash of civilizations uh, thesis, the argument that um, put forward by uh, Harvard professor Samuel P. Huntington, uh, who said that uh, Muslims in the West were what he called an indigestible minority uh, who were incapable of integrating into liberal democracies because of their observance of faith, Islam. Uh, that precludes loyalty to uh, secular constitutions. So I thought this uh, was a very peculiar argument when you consider that uh, Muslims who have moved uh, to, to, to Europe and uh, North America in the last uh, uh, several decades uh, have in one way or another chosen to do so. Uh, so I set out to actually find out what do uh, what I call the Muslim political elite really, really want. And I found that there was, uh, of course, no uh, um, no real uh, conflict. They wanted pretty much the same for Muslims that everybody else wanted. They wanted education, integration, and uh, but their argument was that constantly there were barriers uh, being built around them, and it was a very tricky subject uh, to discuss at that time. Uh, but the book was generally very well received, and I was happy. It was a very interesting research process. It was very enriching for myself, um, uh, ex- the experiences I had. Uh, I'm a political scientist, but for some odd reason, I had never really spent much time going and visiting uh, parliamentarians in their offices in the national assemblies and parliaments. And uh, in this case, for the research, I, I did do so. And, and uh, in many cases, I had to start out by picking up my phone and calling people and saying, well, would you talk to me? I think perhaps you might be a Muslim, and I'm very interested in talking to Muslim parliamentarians. And um, 
it, so it was it was a, a really um, very rewarding um, research project. But what happened when I, the book was published was that uh, there were some very angry reviewers who said, well, this is all very good, uh, but the professor ignores that there are all of these elements of Islam that self-evidently have declared war in the West. And uh, why isn't she writing about them? So I decided, well, why didn't I? I should do that. Uh, And then, of course, what happened next was I discovered that uh, studying a clandestine terrorist organization such as Al-Qaeda and uh, its many followers in the West um, is not an easy thing to do um, because, uh, uh, you know, being a terrorist organization, they work hard uh, to keep things secret and uh, uh, you can't, uh, there are all sorts of uh, restrictions on the type of research you can do. Uh, it's not up to me to go out and uh, uh, point at people and saying, well, I think you might be an extremist and possibly a terrorist. Uh, will you talk to me? That's not um, a, a workable uh, research methodology. So I had to uh, come up with another way of collecting data. Um, and uh, I did. Um, but it was a very um, time-consuming and intensive uh, data collection process uh, that I went through. Um, I essentially used what in my field is called comparative historical sociology uh, to uh, develop uh, a very comprehensive set of um, uh, data about uh, people uh, from real residents and uh, citizenship in uh, what I describe as, as Western uh, countries, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Europe, and North America, uh, who have been um, uh, either uh, convicted or have died uh, in pursuit of uh, terrorist acts inspired by al-Qaeda. Uh, so I've worked uh, since 2006 on developing this data collection, and uh, the book is a result of that, that research process. Wow, that's um, very interesting there. Could you describe um, the uh, the comparative historical sociology you're talking about, the, the the sort of method or paradigm that you're using? Yeah, so it's it's really a very common methodology in, in the field, in the sense that if you want to study um, insurrections uh, or revolutions. Uh, uh, you you can you can go to the archives and uh, you can often uh, collect uh, massive amounts of microdata about arrests or events uh, that um, are part of this uh, movement that's uh, developing, and then you can use uh, these uh, types of archival uh, resources. If you develop a if if you develop a, a coding protocol, you can actually. Uh, uh, really depict uh, in, in granular detail uh, how a movement builds. Uh, and I, so I uh, upscaled that methodology uh, to uh, use a digital platform and uh, trained my students uh, to use uh, written sources. Uh, uh, and, and these range from uh, statements put out by uh, Organizations associated with uh, the broader umbrella that we um, that that en- encompasses Al Qaeda and uh, later the Islamic State um, and court documents, um, biographies written by people who you know these things have always been posted online because people in this movement write what's known as martyrdom uh, biographies. And so there's actually, once you start looking at it this way, there's quite a lot of material. Uh, But to harness that material, you need to have a very persistent and consistent um, methodology for for encoding the information um, across different countries using the same um, the same ways of, of organizing uh, the data so you can later make um, analysis. So what I do is uh, actually uh, network analysis and statistical analysis, but every piece of information is in one way or another derived from an archive, archival source. Okay. Well, so so a lot of it are, if, if I understand correctly, um, 
either people who have um, perhaps, you know, died or, or, or perished in terrorist activities, I mean, perpetrators who have terror, or, or might be in custody or, or something. Is, is that correct? No, that's correct. Um, and again, that goes back to the fact that I cannot, um, I cannot myself go out and, and point to a person and say, well, I think that you are X, Y, and C. Mm-hmm. So I need uh, to rely on uh, some sort of external, either the person themselves will say, oh, I am, I'm going to now travel to uh, fight for the uh, neutral front in Syria because I am committed to this cause uh, and, or else I need uh, some sort of um, other external statement by a government or others uh, to say that this person, so the U- United Nations Security Council, for instance, has um, uh, a, a protocol in place that has been in place since after the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, uh, has a process in place for designating international terrorists. So some of the people that I write about have been on that list, for example. Well, so, and, and you say this is uh, basically 10 years of, of such research that's gone into making this book. Is that correct? Yeah, 15 years. Of 15. Wow, yeah. wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's nothing that can come close to this type of uh, meticulous uh, research, is there? I, I, that would definitely make... Um, your work absolutely unique in, in that respect. Am I right? Yes, it is. It is. It's a unique data collection. Um, in at the end of the day, um, I now have about seven thousand uh, individuals uh, in the data collection. Um, but the book is based on um, a total of six thousand five hundred people, and uh, so the inclusion criteria, as we call it here, is that these are people who are Westerners and who have declared themselves um, or acted on behalf of um, the uh, global uh, jihadist movement uh, associated with either al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. So it's it's a lot of data points. Uh, And uh, so I collected data both about who they are, but also about uh, things like uh, which cities they lived in when they were radicalized, which organizations they... um, affiliated themselves with uh, and uh, what their actions were. Did they, um, uh, did they travel abroad uh, to go and fight for a foreign, uh, designated foreign terrorist organization, or did they do something uh, at home? And uh, I think one of the really surprising findings that come out of my book is that uh, based on all of this evidence, it's quite clear that the first thing uh, that most of the uh, of the folks that I'm writing about want to do is actually to travel abroad and join a foreign terrorist organization. The the, the first choice of action is is not uh, as many people assume to attack the the so-called homeland, their 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 own territory. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, well, there are two aspects we can um, uh, look at there. Uh, one is, um, well, you focus on Westerners. Um, I, I presume you mean um, persons living, uh, per- Muslims living in the West, um, either who might have been there for a couple of generations or more, or, and also maybe people who have just moved there within their lifetimes, I, I suppose. And, and that is, so by Western jihadism, uh, what you use in the title is, is that what is that the definition of it, or how, how would you define Western jihadism? Well, so you have defined Western, uh, which is you know in some regards um, a complicated uh, term. To but I can't study everybody. I was dependent on uh, using uh, sources that I could access and languages I could read. Um, so I've had over 80 um, students working for me over the years, and many of my students um, come from other countries, so we have actually covered all the relevant languages uh, pretty much, um, but uh, from Arabic to Urdu to French and German and Italian, Spanish, etc., and the Scandinavian languages, of course, German, etc. Uh, so um, that part um, was... was 
practically necessary for me to okay. create some boundaries. But yeah. I was also intellectually interested in understanding uh, the motivations and the scope of uh, the what I call the Western branch of this global uh, movement, uh, because um, there's, um, of course, at the core of that, uh, a sort of essential uh, question that always comes up again and again, which is why do um, Westerners who have the opportunity to act within um, become activists and push their course within the democratic framework that is available to for activism. Uh, why do they choose to 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 embrace terrorism? Uh, so that was um, that was that was that's part of the question that I answer. Okay, right. So I mean, it was it was um, perhaps even more of a sort of methodological reason than a um, ideological or, or philosophical or theoretical reason. Is, is that correct? Um, I don't make any assumptions about what motivates, uh, 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 you know, uh, people who joined the Nigerian Boko Haram. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that you can extend and extrapolate from my findings uh, to outside this um, uh, parameter that I'm describing about uh, that that's based on um, freedom of choice. And, uh, you know, we, we know that um, the recruitment mechanisms that, for instance, Al-Shabaab in Somalia and Boko Haram in Nigeria rely on includes certain, you know, uh, induction, they kidnap uh, young boys and girls and uh, takes child soldiers, but there's also money involved. Those types of mechanisms obviously are not, uh, do not play a role in the countries that I have studied. So I, I did hinge this on uh, the assumption of agency, free agency. Uh, so uh, I think there is, you could say that there is um, a theoretical underpinning also for the um, boundary setting that I did. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Yeah, because one of the things you mentioned, I mean, I, I, I want to get into the more general aspects of it, but um, but specifically you, you mentioned something already that um, uh, what you found is that many of these recruits uh, who live in the West want to go to Syria or, or wherever the, the front may be um, of, of fighting rather than attack the UK or or America or wherever it is they live, uh, that and and um, that's interesting. And and for me, I have to say that there's a there's a bit of a, a I, I I'm interested in that because I myself uh, was um, born in the United States, raised in Canada, and uh, so I'm a kind of uh, but my parents were immigrants there, but I decided to leave. Um, you know, for various reasons, and uh, I, I, and p- partly because um, uh, there, you know, I, I did have feelings of alienation and so forth, and, and and I, I am very interested in in that with with respect to these people. I, I could probably see. So I, I don't know if if you explored uh, issues like that. That um, it's it's is perhaps a, a sort of misdirected if, if you want to put it that way but uh, but uh, some sort of response to um, uh, some sort of misdirected response to their prospect of, of integration or something is that is that something that first of all uh, it's, it sounds like it's something that that contradicted perhaps what other people um, thought so your research has uncovered this that, that people want to go back. And then, I mean, so, and, and uh, have you explored, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, the reasons and, and thinking behind that? I, I think that would be very interesting. No, so the book is uh, really comprised of a, a very different chapters that uh, each tell sort of different stories. And now we have talked a lot about um, the data that I have collected, but I also have, uh, more, um, I have a chapter, for instance, that based on um, a discussion I had with uh, a former Guantanamo Bay detainee um, who was a Danish Algerian. I met him in Copenhagen. I am for 
benefit of your listeners originally from Denmark myself. And uh, so I was interested in talking to him about his motivations and uh, his uh, he he scoffed at the idea that um, uh, discrimination or alienation was uh, had pushed him uh, to do what he did. Uh, uh, he was very adamant that um, for him, uh, one day as he was uh, a young teenager, uh, he had been struck uh, by um, a vision. Uh, and the vision was that he would dedicate his life uh, to fight for Allah. And if you talk to uh, people who have joined this movement, they will all come up with these type of stories that one day they had um, this vision came to them, uh, and they they will all cite uh, some type of divine experience. Now, I'm a social scientist. I don't believe in divine experiences, so in my case, um, I need to ask questions about what put this individual into a situation where he becomes receptive to this idea. Uh, but more broadly, it's quite clearly the case from my research that uh, when people join up, they join because they're excited, they want to, um, uh, they, they have a sense of purpose, uh, they are fired up by uh, uh, what we sometimes call perverse altruism. Uh, you know, if you have young women coming from Bethnal Green in London going to Raqqa to join the morality police where they, for the Islamic State, where they then put themselves in a situation where they go around and whip the local women for not wearing the, 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 the mandated clothing. You know, that is something we really need to wrap our heads around. That is an extraordinary um, phenomenon. Uh, and, and this is a true story. This did, really did happen. Uh, but it's clearly the case that uh, the, uh, the Westerners who join up are revolutionaries. They, they are committed to this revolution. Now, it should be said, uh, and this is, this is what is sometimes forgotten, that only a tiny, tiny minority uh, ever were attracted by, by this type of uh, uh, revolutionary seal. Uh, but the Islamic State uh, was also a special episode in the movement that I describe, in part because uh, the Islamic State uh, took control of territory and became a colonizing power. And it sent out the message, anybody could come. You know, Al-Qaeda back in the 1990s when they had training camps in Afghanistan, were not interested in having teenage girls from Besnel Green coming, uh, flocking to Afghanistan. The Islamic State were happy to have them come and wanted them to come because they wanted to use them as part of a colonization project. And they wanted to hand them out as, as wives to, uh, uh, to reward uh, the fighters. So uh, in the 30 years that I describe, uh, there's, uh, there, there are things that have changed, but I also describe some uh, pretty consistent patterns. And one of those consistent patterns is that uh, the people who join are really motivated by seal uh, rather than by anger. Okay, that that's um, that's interesting. Uh, just just as an aside, uh, are you familiar with Hanif Qureshi's um, uh, short story and uh, film "My Son the Fanatic"? Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Yes. Did, 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 was that relevant? Did you find that relevant to you? It, actually, all? I use it in the course I teach. Um, right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I find that fascinating myself. Yes. And then for for listeners who don't know, it's about a uh, a Pakistani immigrant uh, who is quite liberal, smokes, drinks, uh, has affairs, and whatnot. And his son, uh, who was born in the UK, is a Islamic fundamentalist and uh, who who thinks of his father as a um, a sinner, I, I suppose. I can't remember what the exact word um, would be in the Islamic um, lexicon, but yeah, but a, a very, very interesting uh, phenomenon there. But yeah, so let me ask you in terms of your your book, um, what what is what is the argument that that you've come up with after looking at all this data and analyzing it um, uh, that, and particularly that uh, you know. Uh, might upend or or surprise or deepen 
the more common understandings of the development of Al Qaeda, ISIS, ISIL, etc. I I think that um, uh, maybe the, the most surprising um, conclusion to many of your listeners might be that I uh, uh, profoundly uh, disagree and. Um, uh, show that the assumptions that was established in the UK after the London Underground bombings in um, in July uh, 2005, that the perpetrators were young, angry, and Muslim, um, and uh, that it was uh, the uh, experience of discrimination that had uh, driven them to do what they did was just a misdiagnosis. Uh, the uh, reality is that attacks like the 9-11 attacks, but also like uh, the 7-7 attacks and the follow-up attack you know, uh, that uh, misfired because the bombs didn't work on uh, July 21, uh, because it also 2005, those were paired incidents, but most people haven't heard about uh, th- uh, July 21 because um, it, it didn't, go off. I mean, the, the young men went on, on the tube with their backpacks, but their backpacks, bombs, uh, misfired. So uh, everybody remembers uh, the 7-7 bombers, but the 721 bombers are not um, remembered so much. The reality is that attacks like those were all in the making for a long period of time. And uh, Mohammed Sidi Khan, who um, was uh, the really the quartermaster, the leader of the uh, both of these two attacks, actually had gone to the training camps already before the 9-11 attacks and had, was selected uh, by a British-Pakistani named Rashid Warouf out of the uh, training camps uh, that at that time he had actually first gone to a place in, in Pakistan and was then uh, taken into to Afghanistan and was uh, given his mission. Uh, now, uh, it, if you look back, it's obvious that there was a hand of Al-Qaeda in all of this because we later got the uh, martyrdom videos that had been filmed long before the attacks were carried out. But if you start thinking about this in, uh, in sequence and establish the historical sequence, it is quite clear that the initial motivations that um, uh, were not that now we're going to go and attack the London Underground. That was uh, that whole language about anger and everything we remember. That was the staging of the attack. That was uh, that was uh, uh, the framing uh, that was imposed upon the attack. All terrorism is in one way or another formed for theater. Uh, so if you listen to what the terrorists say at the moment when they carry out the attack, when how they justify the attack. We should not confuse that with what was their original motivation for joining up. Uh, so the the big argument in my book is that we have had this Western branch of uh, terrorism developing uh, because it was in the strategic interest of Al-Qaeda and um, bin Laden uh, to recruit Westerners to carry out things um, like the 7-7 bombings um, on their behalf. And that it was this strategic uh, effort really developed uh, very early. And I have some, I show some datelines. Bin Laden started recruiting Westerners with passports already uh, in 1998. uh, And uh, his assistant, Khalil Shaikh Mohammed, we have it in their own words that uh, it was uh, very important for uh, for Al-Qaeda uh, to recruit people with Western passports, both for the symbolic um, uh, impact on, of having somebody like uh, Siddiq Khan uh, speaking in English uh, with a dialect, etc., uh, describing the purpose on, uh, as, as uh, we are young and angry and this is your punishment, you in the West, for what you're doing to Islam and to Muslims. That was a, that was a propaganda coup. Uh, but that argument that was put into the propaganda, that's not actually what motivates people to join up in the first place. Uh, what motivates people to join up in the first place is uh, the idea that 
that they can join up to this mission that's larger than themselves, that they can go. In some cases, you know, it's as simple as just wanting to uh, be, you know, swagging around and, and, and have a gun and control others. And so I compare the recruitment mechanism actually in some cases to the way people are recruited into gangs. It's, it's that the similarities are sometimes striking. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right, right, right. And I mean, you, you know, you were talking about the um, young girls and so forth. I, I've seen um, ISIS, uh, I think it was ISIS, recruiting videos with... Um, I think young young girls um, uh, eating pizza and, and and stuff like that. I'm I'm sure you, you would be aware of, of what I'm talking about to to make it seem how how great you know it, it would be to 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 be all, you know living in I suppose in, in the caliphate to be or the emerging caliphate or or, or however yeah and, and that yeah the, the recruiting. Um, so the, I, I guess it's, to get to, to the argument again, um, so basically, if I understand it correctly, what you're saying is that the argument that you know these attacks in Western countries are based on, let's say, you know, they, they put it in the civil rights discourse. So, so um, discrimination, alienation, and, and these are are local. Um, persons who are aggrieved with the process of, of integration or equality or whatnot. And if I understand you correctly, you're saying, no, this is actually um, uh, dictated from outside. It is um, clearly Al-Qaeda and perhaps later ISIS, but, uh, but, but these global jihadist forces that are organizing these, these individuals who um well i, I well you, from your argument it's not that it has really nothing to do so much with alienation as opposed to ideological religious zeal is is that correct that's so, correct i mean so if you think about it um we now have a few instances of people uh, who come from uh, multi-generational families uh, that have been involved. We saw that in the case of uh, the uh, some of the uh, people coming from Brussels who were responsible uh, for the um, uh, November uh, shooting attack in Paris. But this is really the exception. Uh, the people we have seen from the West who are joined up, they are rebelling both against their families and they're rebelling against uh, the... Um, um, they're changing themselves into this uh, avatar for the global jihad. And uh, there's, uh, I think it's uh, important to, to recognize that uh, people who are upset about uh, the way Muslims' lives are lived and uh, think that uh, they, there's, uh, Islamophobia has been uh, a serious hindrance uh, to the uh, efforts and the part of Western Muslims to live their lives uh, fully. They don't reach for terrorism. They become political activists. They join um, groups and they stand for election and um, uh, find other things to do. They start writing novels or make movies or do other things. This is so we're talking about a very different phenomenon, and I think it's just really a disservice to our own understanding of uh, what we are dealing with if we conflate uh, the Western branches of the globalized jihadist movement with uh, anger against uh, an opposition to um, to the way uh, the West um, characterizes Muslims. That's very interesting. That, that, I think that's a very important point. Yes, yes, that um, that the the response to um, any sort of 
civil rights or or Islamophobia or whatnot does not automatically go to terrorism that you want to blow things up. But it, just like with you know most other human beings, it's political activism and and whatnot, cultural activism, etc. Um, that I, I think that's that's an excellent um, yeah that's an excellent point uh, uh, and and uh, so how, I mean so how how did how does your research um, lead you to that conclusion particularly with all that data you, you, you've gathered? Well, so I have um, um, most of the book is about the, the global picture, how the Westerners uh, fit in the the the, right. the cover of the book uh, looks uh, like um, an airline route map. Uh, There are lines uh, there that uh, tie uh, little dots in North America and Western Europe and Australia in with all the uh, global hotspots in Somalia, in Afghanistan, um, and elsewhere, particularly, obviously, in Iraq and Syria. So this route map is actually developed based on uh, data that I have um, a code uh, of uh, communication acts between the 6,500 Westerners in the database and their, um, uh, their counterparts, uh, where they have traveled, uh, who they have talked to. And the depiction is a sort of very visual uh, image of the global integration of the Western movements with the rest. Uh, and I th- one of the uh, important uh, things to remember is that um, the jihadist movement, and I call them the jihadists, which is a somewhat controversial term, uh, in, in part because I regard this as of a, of a religiously inspired uh revolutionary movement that has taken certain parts of the Quran and certain parts of uh, the history of Islam and uh, twisted it into um, a theory of the, a historical theory of, of, of the world, but also the future. They believe in this coming apocalypse where all the, um, the saved souls will uh, fight uh, against people like you and I, and uh, with divine intervention will take over the world. And they really do believe in this apocalypse uh, in a big way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that chapter I have in the book with my conversation with the, with the, with the Danish Algerian who had uh, at one point in time ended up in Guantanamo Bay um, really highlights how this thinking is very, very real. Uh, for for the people who join up, uh, but uh, you know it, it is a revolutionary movement in the sense that they uh, they thrive on globalization. If you think about nationalists, they mourn the erosion of, of borders caused by globalizations, but the jihadists celebrate the end of the nation state. They want their ultimate goal is to upend every existing Muslims country. Uh, and and create this um, uh, uh, utopia that um, many people uh, would call it dystopia, where there is no state and divine uh, law in there as they um, interpret it uh, will will control what they describe as Muslim lands and that revolution they see starting out of the core territory and uh, that they describe as the Khorasan. Uh, which is a territory that sort of broadly covers um, uh, parts of, of, of uh, Afghanistan, parts of Iran, and, and stretches into um, uh, what is uh, also um, Syria and, and Iraq. Uh, this, this sort of symbolic heartland from where the revolution is going to spread is very important in, the, in their thinking. And that's why, you know, when we, I talk about the Westerners, but I stress again and again that this is really a war um, uh, to control the Muslim mind. It's a war over uh, what Muslims do, and they seek to control uh, what Muslims do and think about Islam. Yes, yes. I mean, and I, I guess this also goes into, uh, um, you know, it, I, I suppose you can call it like a civil war within Islam and then in all the mosques all over the world, the Salafists and, 
control over the the sort of ideology the ideology um i i don't i don't know if you if you get into that uh, so much uh into your in your studies at all uh, do you um i was more interested in um what do they actually themselves believe? I describe right. what my approach as what I call a behavioralist approach. Mm-hmm. So I do I do do talk about uh, what the um, so-called public uh, intellectuals of jihad say um, and uh, how they um, uh, see this forward strategy and their disagreements. You know, these are, are people mm-hmm. who are very uh, – uh, they always disagree with each other. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of my points is, though, that I think we have sometimes uh, overestimated uh, that how important uh, their uh, disputations are of each other's point. At the end of the day, they're actually quite good about um, following in line. Uh, they have a very acute sense of who the enemy is and, and who is the friend and so even they're very forgiving if, uh, if at some point in time a, a comrade in arms uh, step over and, uh, to the other side. And so uh, the, the split between the Islamic State and al-Qaeda is very interesting in that regard because at the top level uh, it was a very deadly disagreement. Um, the Islamic State sent suicide uh, teams in to uh, kill members of uh, the Nusra Front and the Al-Qaeda uh, affiliate in Syria, their top leaders. But when you look at the bottom, uh, at the sort of down the pyramid of, um, of followers, uh, this was a split that uh, was very unwelcome, uh, they described as fitna. Close the door on this fitna again and again. You saw the, the recruiters in Western Europe say, close the door on this fitna. And uh, many tried to have a foot in both camps as long as they possibly could. So I think that um, at, at the bottom of this uh, chain of command, uh, the activists actually will be happy to switch back and forth. We saw also in, uh, you know, we have seen um, efforts to the San Bernardino attackers dedicated their attack to both groups, to both Al-Qaeda and to the Islamic State. Right, right. Now, I mean, in in the global situation uh, right now, at least in, dominant in the consciousness, you know, let's say mass media consciousness, Al Qaeda and ISIS seem to have, you know, been subdued. And uh, I mean, because of Afghanistan, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Taliban is kind of uh, resurfacing in terms of uh, the mainstream discourse, at least. Um, well, for for people who who may not be um, so familiar with all the details between let's say Al Qaeda, ISIS, and the Taliban, uh, has has what has your research um, uncovered to sort of help uh, understand uh, these groups and and maybe uh, even perhaps debunk some common understandings that people might have and, uh, and and maybe what nuances or insights um, you provide into understanding where they are now and and you know where you know do they remain threats etc um, so most of my work on this relies on um, evidence and intelligence published by the United Nations Security Council's uh, analysis team. Uh, I do not myself have the capabilities to really talk about what's going on in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I will say in this context is that we know that already two years ago, um, Ayman al-Sabrahiri had a personal meeting with uh, uh, the new generation leading the Haqqani network. The Haqqani network is uh, a mix of a jihadist organization and a crime cartel that makes a lot of money off uh, drug trades, international drug trade. Um, And it's mostly based in um, in northwest Pakistan, but it's also based in Afghanistan. And the Haqqani network is part of the broader umbrella that is what we call the Taliban. The Taliban is not a uniform organization. It's a coalition of warlords. 
Mm-hmm. And the Haqqani network uh, has always been uh, very hospitable uh, to Al-Qaeda. And uh, according to uh, the United Nations Security Council's analysis team, uh, already by the time that uh, peace was being made in Doha, uh, with, with the Taliban uh, and the negotiations that led to the situation, we, uh, the withdrawal and the situation that we are faced with now in Afghanistan, uh, Al-Qaeda already had um, safe haven in 15 of the um, uh, Afghan provinces. Uh, so, yes, Al-Qaeda is uh, back. Al-Qaeda is... Uh, lying low in Afghanistan, but has found a new safe haven. Uh, it would be incredibly naive for anybody to believe that uh, the uh, Taliban would kick them out. Uh, we see now references in the press uh, to promises made by the Taliban as part of these negotiations in Doha uh, to not uh, uh, allow uh, a home to Al-Qaeda. But even there, there were no so, so promises made. That, that is not accurate. There, the, the, the Taliban is ideologically not able to disavow uh, the jihadists. Um, the Taliban is a different type of organization than the globalist uh, jihadists. Uh, right. They are focused on um, taking control of Afghanistan, and they have many disagreements among themselves, uh, but they first want to impose uh, religious law in their understanding of it on Afghanistan. But they cannot actually dissolve uh, their comrades in this other uh, branch of the, the Salafist jihadist movement and will not do so. Uh, so we are faced with a very difficult situation. Uh, it is uh, the case, I believe, that under Ayman al-Sabahir's leadership in the last five years, a decision was made not to attack the United States and let the Islamic State take care of attacking Europe. Uh, and this is uh, was a tactical decision that al-Qaeda has made in order to consolidate uh, its organization and protect uh, as, as its troops as much as it could against retribution from the United States. Meanwhile, there have been uh, a drone campaign actually against many of the um, the leaders of Al Qaeda. Uh, not very many people left of the first uh, generation. Basically, it's Ayman al Sarahiri and um, somebody named Saif al Adel, uh, who for a period of time was believed to be. Um, based in uh, in northern Syria, but now probably is in Iraq. Uh, no, sorry, in Iran, but we don't, nobody really knows for sure where he actually is. Uh, but in any case, there is a new cadre of leaders in, um, in Al-Qaeda of uh, really uh, experienced and uh, well, men who, who have, um, uh, you know, joined as part of, during the, the, the Syrian civil war. Uh, so Al-Qaeda is in stronger and bigger shape today than it ever was. Uh, the question is, what will happen to the Western branches? Um, uh, they are also pretty much lying low right now. Um, so we don't know. Uh, it's, it's Make a prediction now, but the one thing I will argue about the future is that the next wave of terrorist attacks is already being planned right now. When we look uh, at Al-Qaeda's history, planning um, takes place. Um, I, I describe in my book, terrorist attacks are a little like uh, stars. Uh, they are formed uh, long before you see them. And right. I believe that we need to worry very much about the next five years. So in terms of understanding these three groups, t- tell me if, if I... Um, if, if my understanding would be sort of, it was kind of accurate. Taliban is kind of like a Pashtun ethnic warlord organization, Af- so Afghanistan, Pakistan area. And, and, and although it, it, it uh, but it shares the Salafist jihadist ideology. So it is, you know, uh, accommodating to ISIS, Al Qaeda. ISIS too is probably a bit more broad-minded than the Taliban, but they're still very much focused on um, the Levant, what we call the Middle East, and and so forth, and actually establishing 
whereas Al Qaeda is is more the kind of globalist. Uh, I don't know if what you want to call the vanguardist movement uh, uh, and and uh, you know see see it, um, kind of coordinating uh, global Muslims for uh, um, uh, for jihad. It, it, is that a, a accurate way of kind of differentiating the three? Yes, I think you did very well there in summarizing that. Uh, so you know, one thing that we we know a lot more about Bin Laden's thinking now because of all the uh, archival material that has come out of um, the the hoard taken from his house in Abbottabad. And uh, if when we read his letters, when we read his thinking, uh, it is striking how secular his revolutionary seal was, how much of it actually resembles the sort of basic uh, avant-gardist uh, 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 proto-revolutionary movement. He was writing constantly about how the financial crisis for sure was a signal that the decline of the, the profits in the United States were going to take down the regime. Uh, making me, you know, when I was reading it, I was thinking, you know, since it's more of Lenin than I was thinking of a yeah. revolutionary um, uh, Islamist uh, mm-hmm. and uh, his his thinking always was that uh, uh, imperial powers could be brought down by uh, a, a proto Maoist strategy of uh, insurrection and uh, uh, because the costs imposed being imposed on the inflexible superpower would be such that it would bring down the, the and cause the United States to withdraw. And, you know, that's why people are saying rightly right now that the jihad is uh, jubilant. They consider the American withdrawal from Afghanistan as proof that bin Laden was right, that the imperialist power could not uh, sustain the cost. Right, right. Now, the last chapter in your book is called uh, The Never-Ending Forever War. Um, For the readers, um, could you just briefly... Uh, tell us what what you mean by that. Do you, do you mean that this will never end? In in your opinion, well, it's tongue in cheek. Um, yeah. But uh, yes, uh, I think that we, we there has been well, the thinking, the strategic thinking about how to deal with Al Qaeda has failed to grapple with the fact that this is a globalized non-state actor and. The uh, constantly uh, Al-Qaeda has been underestimated. And so I warn against that. Um, we know already that um, uh, there are organizations in Africa and Asia that are associated broadly with Al-Qaeda. Um, there is a sort of shift in Al-Qaeda thinking from the day, the glory days of bin Laden in the 1990s uh, to thinking more about creating what they call localized emirates. Um, it's, it's sort of what I call a, a local global phenomenon where uh, bastions, it's like a global checkboard where bastions are being created here and there. Um, and and uh, But on top of that, uh, the... Uh, global elite within the cadre, the commanders, are extremely well-connected and uh, hopscotch from uh, one location to another, and they do communicate. There's no doubt that um, Ayman al-Sabahiri's ability uh, to communicate with the troops was uh, and has been deteriorating. There's been speculations that he was dead, now, we did get uh, uh, over the weekend here um, a 9-11 uh, anniversary greeting for Ayman al-Sabahiri. That doesn't definitively prove that he's currently alive, but there are references in uh, what he says that um, show that he didn't die in November uh, last year, as uh, often assumed. Uh, so we don't know where he is based, and we don't know the extent to which his um, uh, he and 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 his uh, most intimate uh, associates continue to call the shots. Uh, it's fair to assume that uh, the uh, control and command chains have 
deteriorated uh, rather dramatically. But that doesn't mean that the, this isn't a coordinated movement. For one thing, the ideology has uh, really an action plan embedded, uh, and that in itself uh, uh, coordinate the uh, and and provided a certain element of leadership very well. Uh, so I think that it's. Uh, Globalization creates an infrastructure for risk management and risk avoidance. And uh, the the strength of Al-Qaeda has been that it's been able to harness globalization to build an organization. So that's why I say that this is something that's going to be with us for a long time. I mean, for, as it's a practical matter, Al-Qaeda has already, uh, with a 30-year history, uh, by far exceeded the ordinary expect- life expectancy of a terrorist organization. Right, right. So, I mean, I, I was going to ask you, you know, I mean, I, I, it's, you know, maybe not possible to to summarize your, you know, 15 years of intensive data gathering in this book uh, so simply in a sentence. But but if, if there's, a you know, a, an overriding message that you want uh, to leave your readers with, uh, w- would that have been it, what you just said, that... Um, uh, basically, Al Qaeda is a, uh, you know, is is embedded in a sense in globalization itself, and therefore is going to be with us for a long time. Is is that the the message you basically want to leave your readers with, or or what? Yes, that's very well put. I mean, they fight not for control of a particular patch of land; uh, they fight against the system of states, and they mm-hmm. fight in particular against the system of Muslim states. Uh, so they mm-hmm. uh, they they re- they will thrive on uh, territories where uh, governments mm-hmm. exercise poor control, and mm-hmm. they will tie those types of uh, hotspots together through um, a very elaborate and well connected uh, network cadre into uh, a, a global organization. Oh, okay. All right. Well. Uh all right, that's very interesting. Uh, I'm, before we close up, I just want to ask, you know, are, are there any other projects you're working on right now that you'd like our audience to know about? Yeah, so uh, I'm taking a rest now. This has been a big job pushing out yeah. this book. Uh, but I'm very interested in um, uh, trying to uh, harness uh, data science uh, to develop um, profiles of how people become radicalized to a point of being able uh, to kill uh, in the name of an ideology. And uh, so one of the aspects of my work has been uh, that I have shown or that um, we do actually see behavioral changes, that when people, becoming a terrorist is learned behavior. It depends on um, opportunity uh, to latch on to others, uh, peer groups, but it also involves a remaking of the self into uh, being capable of, of killing. You know, terrorists kill not to enrich themselves uh, or because they're evil people. They kill for a purpose. Uh, we often describe uh, them as evil uh, George Bush famously described al-Qaeda as evildoers. And for sure, uh, terrorism uh, has has elements that we often will describe uh, or be tempted to describe as evil. But that's exactly part of the message. They aim for this type of of shock effect. So I'm very interested in seeing if uh, we can generalize uh, what I know about this process of becoming capable of carrying out uh, violence in the name of an ideology across different ideologies to sort of create a behavioral profile of um, extremist radicalization leading to violence. Uh, So I did some work recently on a a new group uh, known as INCELS, uh, the Involuntary Celibates. Uh, mm-hmm. They are really a challenge to our understanding of terrorism because uh, nearly half of them, it's just, they're very lethal. Uh, when they kill, they really kill large numbers of people often. Uh, but they also, generally speaking, uh, mentally ill. Uh, half, At least half of the people that I have studied have a, 
a mental health diagnosis before they uh, go down the trajectory of actually um, committing uh, violent uh, incidents. So uh, normally uh, we regard uh, terrorism as, you know, simply the opposite of mental uh, mental illness. Uh, yeah. You can't have, um, I mean, Al-Qaeda did not want to deal with mentally ill people. Uh, so we, have, we are looking at a sort of weird diffusion of violent extremism uh, that um, we don't know quite how to characterize. Uh, so that's that's what I'm interested in working on. Wow, that's very interesting. I look forward to that. Thank you. Thanks very much for this interview. It's been really informative and thought-provoking. Once again, the book is Western Jihadism, A 30-Year History. And we've been speaking to the author, Jutta Clausen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my book. I'm, I'm grateful. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you.